So we're going to go over to our text now. So I, I want to pray um, and ask that God would give me help um, to, to teach this. And then we'll, we'll go into Matthew chapter 3, verse 13 through 17. Let's pray. Lord, I, uh, I thank you for the opportunity that you've given us to gather together this morning um, under the name of Jesus, for the glory of Jesus. I thank you, Lord, that we can come here and that we can worship. God, I pray that you would give me help. I know that there's, there's really no way that in my own strength and in my own power that I could ever communicate the gospel with any authority, with any weight. And so I pray, Lord, that you would come behind my words and send your spirit into my heart and to everyone's here and to their heart. And Lord, that we would see Christ more fully. We would love Christ more deeply, that we would appreciate the gospel more fully and that you would help us as we hear the gospel be affected deeply and be able to walk out of this on mission and excited to see the gospel go forward in this city. God, this is a, uh, a tremendous text if we look into it. And, and I pray, Lord, that you would help me teach it accurately so that I can, <clears throat> I can uh, explain to the best of my ability just how amazing this is. I thank you, Father, for your love. I pray for all my friends here that you would be kind to us all as we study your word and that the Holy Spirit would be thick in this place. I pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So, we're in the Gospel of Matthew. And as I've said before, um, hopefully I'm not wearing you out with this, but Matthew has written this book to primarily to a Jewish audience. He's wanting the Jews to see that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. Um, that's, That's his main goal, is that he wants all the people who were Jewish, who knew the Old Testament scriptures, who knew the Old Testament prophecies, that this man Jesus that was born was not just a good guy, was not just a prophet, was not just a good teacher, but was the Messiah. Um, and so he's been working through here. And um, chapters 1 and 2 were about the coming king. It's kind of talking about Jesus as a baby, beginning us going. And then we see at the end of chapter 2, um, verse 23, where he's talking about he went and lived in a city called Nazareth. We know that that's as he's, as, when he's a child that was spoken by the prophets. It should be fulfilled that he should be called a Nazarene. And then it moves forward into chapter 3 and it says, In those days, John the Baptist. Now, we know that um, as we look at that from 2.23 to one, basically moves forward a good 25 years or so. So we've begun... Basically, what's starting is the preparation for the ministry of Jesus. Jesus is now preparing for his full-time ministry. And in chapter 3, John's main goal is to kind of introduce the central character of chapter 3, not of the Word. Um, the, the, the central character of the whole book is, of course, Jesus. But the central character that here that we see in John chapter 3 is John the Baptist. Um, and last week, we talked about who John the Baptist was in verses 1 through 6, and he's really just the next Elijah. In verses 7 through 12, we talked about what his message was, which is repent and confess. And as we repent and as we confess, we're, going, we're supposed to go bear fruit that's keeping with repentance. And that's kind of what the pattern of our ministry looks like, because we're all ministers. Now, this next section, which is 13 through 17, we're going to talk about what John the Baptist did. And there, there's rhythms to texts. There's rhythms um, as, as to sermons week to week, especially when you preach through verses, 
through verses and through books of the Bible. Um, there's, there's texts like Matthew 3, 1 through 12, uh, where I can, I can talk about repentance and confession and what that looks like to bearing fruit. And it can be a, a pretty convicting kind of sermon. Or as we get to Matthew 7, maybe that'll happen if the Lord wills. Um, and I say convicting in my own life. Um, and as we get to this text, there's not necessarily a ton that's convicting um, as far as like, I'm going to point out the fact that you need to repent and confess, but there's rhythms to this. Matthew's bringing us through things always. And in this text, this text is just about Jesus, which is good, which is always good. It should always be about Jesus. This text is just about the greatness of Christ and what it looks like for him now to begin his public ministry. Um, perhaps you have a favorite movie um, that you've seen before. And generally, like if I, if I have a favorite movie and I'm watching it, uh, there's there's... There's scenes in the beginning where we haven't seen the main character yet. And so, it, especially whenever you're excited about these movies, if it's Braveheart or The Karate Kid or whatever, um, <laughs> I don't know why I say Karate. So, um, you've got kind of the first opening scenes where they're showing some of the characters, but they haven't shown the main character of the movie. And all of a sudden, if this main character is just a stud, right? When he, it, it, the, the first, after the four, four minutes or so, it shows the main character and you kind of like, yes, there he is. You know, your heart kind of flutters a little bit. Um, well, that's basically, Matthew has been doing that. Now, we've seen Jesus already in these texts, but now we're getting to where he's starting his public ministry. And so this is where, as we're coming up to this text, our hearts should be like, yes, Jesus now. Like we're getting to see the man Jesus start his ministry because you know the whole story. You know the whole story. You know that this is where it's going to be like, it's about time. It's starting to get good. We are going to see the man because here's the deal. Um, we come here every week and we don't worship theology. We don't worship the morals of Jesus or the teachings of Jesus. We worship Jesus himself. Like it's all about him. And so this text, when we see, then Jesus, this is where it starts. This is where we start getting excited. Let me read the text and then we're going we're gonna to go through it. Then Jesus came from Galilee. Galilee's a region where, where Nazareth was to the north. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan, to John, to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he, that's John, consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Alright, so let's go back up to verse 13. And we're going we're to unpack these short verses. Then Jesus stop. Like that right there is just enough. We've kind of talked about it already, about the main character, Jesus, is stepping onto the scene and he is starting his what would be his public ministry. And so this already creates in us some anticipation. If you're a Christian especially, you know the whole story and you know that your life is all about Jesus and all of a sudden Matthew is unfolding the story and your favorite, most favorite character in the story, but you're the, not just that, but the one you live your life for, your Savior, is now stepped on. And so we should be extra super excited because the rest of the story is about Him. The way He interacted with people, the way He healed people, the way He talked with people, and what He did. And so this is where it, it starts getting awesome. But here, there's more to that. There's more than just our main character is now stepping on the scene. Um, something much, much, much deeper. 
then Jesus. Let, let me read to you um, a text in Acts. This is not going to be on the screen, but um, I want to read a text to you about why then Jesus is even more significant. This is after Jesus had died, uh, there was a man named Peter, and he was preaching a sermon. And as he's preaching a sermon, he's talking about this guy, Jesus, who had come and lived and died and had been resurrected. And he's, he's speaking to an audience. And this is what Jesus, uh, I'm sorry, this is what Peter says in this sermon that he's preaching. Men of Israel, this is, this is Acts 2 if you want to be there. It's 2.22, but it's just two verses. So listen, Peter says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. So then Jesus is... This is now ushering in the life and public ministry of Jesus where all these wondrous works are about to get done. They're about to begin. He's about to start healing people, um, talking to people who are poor, reaching out to people who are on the outcasts of society, having conversations with prostitutes and involving them, having dinner with sinners. So this is the beginning of his public ministry, but this is where it's really amazing. All right, This is why... The words, then Jesus, and 3.13 should absolutely astound us. This, these words, then Jesus, are screaming volumes for amazing words. Listen to this. This is 23. This Jesus, delivered up according, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. The definite plan... The foreknowledge of God. In this moment where Jesus is stepping forward to be baptized, the definite plan all the way from eternity past was that God would send His Son. God would send His Son to come and die. Like there was, there was no other plan. The definite plan of God was that I'm going to send my Son now and He is going to come and die. These words, then Jesus, should stir us deeply into the depths of our souls because Jesus was sent to come and die. Right before then Jesus, humanly speaking, Jesus was still safe. The reason why Jesus died is because He stepped on the scene and started healing people. His public ministry is what infuriated the Jews, and that's why they killed him. So before then Jesus, Jesus was still safe. But at the moment of then Jesus beginning his public ministry, the next three years, he knew this is, when I do this, this is my decision now to willingly carry out the definite plan of my father from eternity past. That's our God and Savior. He was obedient to the Father. So the first point I want you to get from this is this. Jesus was totally obedient to the Father. The Father's infinite plan from eternity past was to go and gather children from every language, from every ethnicity, to gather them together and forgive their sins by Jesus stepping forward and being the wrath-bearer of the Father by dying for us on the cross. And Jesus, knowing all of this, at this moment, begins the public ministry. Then Jesus is showing us the radical obedience of Christ to the definite plan of the Father. Jesus was obedient to the Father's will. Paul says it like this in the book of Philippians. This is Philippians 2, 8 through 11. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth 
and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So the first thing that I want you to see in this text is that Jesus obeys the will of the Father. Then Jesus. So those are packed words, those two words. All right, let's look at 13 through 15. We're going to see the second thing. Then Jesus came from Galilee to, to, to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented, John. All right, John consented. Now, as I'm studying this week, two huge questions just kind of jump out that are, seem to be pretty problematic for me. Um, and so before we go any further, I just want to kind of throw those two questions out and let's go ahead and answer them. Um, let's go ahead and answer those two questions um, because they could be problematic. Now, we know last week as we were studying Matthew 3, 1 through 12, we know that John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. That's what he was calling the people for, baptism of repentance. So the first question I have is, um, why did Jesus need to be baptized? Did Jesus need to repent of something? John's calling for a baptism of repentance. Is there something that Jesus needed to be baptized for? The second question is this. What in the world does it mean when he said, this is fitting to fulfill all righteousness? What in the world does that mean? Isn't Jesus righteous? Like 100% righteous? Um, what does that mean? And how can I understand what it means to be fulfilling all righteousness? Those are the two questions that kind of jump out for, for me at first is, why does he need to be baptized and what does it mean to fulfill all righteousness? All right. First of all, yes, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance as he's calling them forward. But no, Jesus does not need to repent. We have um, ample text. I'm just going to throw one out there for you from Hebrews 4. It says this. Um, this is just showing us that Jesus never sinned and that he had nothing to repent of. Um, for we have a for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weakness, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet was without sin. So Jesus never sinned. So what's the point of him being baptized then? Why does he need to be baptized? Well, what's going on here is this. Jesus is wanting to publicly identify with us sinners. It's not that he is a sinner. It's that he's wanting to publicly identify with us. And we need this. We need to know that he is identifying with us in every single way. Um, but he never sinned. Um, Calvin says this. Now, this is a little bit long, but just bear with me. It's only four lines, but sometimes when I read, my wife's like, you read too long and I check out. Don't check out. This is, this is good stuff. Um, talking about the, the identification of Christ with us and his being baptized. Um, he was baptized in order that he might render full obedience to the Father. So the first reason Jesus was baptized was to render full obedience to the Father. Um, and that he might consecrate baptism in his own body, that we might have it in common with him. So whenever we're baptized, our Savior was also baptized, and we have that now in common with us. He's identifying with us. Um, that assures believers that they are engrafted into his body, and that they are, which is the symbol of baptism, they are buried with Christ in baptism, and that they now have been raised to newness in life. 
So this identification with us that Christ has been baptized, when we are baptized, we know that He was as well, and that whenever we go down into the water, we're identifying our death as the death of Christ when He died on the cross, and then as we're raised to new life, as we're coming up out of the water, we're identifying His resurrection, defeating death, as our resurrection, defeating death, and now we have life in Christ to walk through and, and be a Christ follower. So that's, that's the first thing. Um, so the second thing I want you to see, actually, this is kind of the big thing. The first one is that Jesus obeyed the Father fully. The second thing I want you to see is, is that Jesus is identifying with us. Um, this text is showing us, number one, that Jesus obeys the Father. Second thing is that his, he is identifying with us. Now remember, Matthew's whole plan is to help the Jews see, help those that are Jewish to see, Jesus is the Messiah. This man, Jesus, is the the Messiah, the one that came that has been talked about from old who is going to come and save us and be our king one day. And they need to see that this man, Jesus, was always fully obedient to the Father. And they need to see that this man, Jesus, comes and identifies with us so that they can have a Savior. All right. Now, um, the next question is, what does it mean to fulfill all righteousness. Didn't Jesus already have a perfect righteousness? <laughs> yes, he did. Um, he kept the law perfectly. Um, what it is, is Al Mohler, as he's, as he's unpacking this, tells us this, that as um, Christ is saying, I need to fulfill all righteousness, what he's doing is he's offering himself out for everyone to see as the priestly office of Christ. Um, Christ, as he comes, fulfills three roles, the prophet, the priest, and the king. And right here, he's fulfilling the priestly role, which is drawing attention to himself that as the priest for us, that he is going to be the uh, one who's going to come and fulfill all the righteousness for us when he comes and dies on the cross. So what's going on here is James Boyce is kind of um, explaining this fulfilling all righteousness, and he says, Jesus identified with us in our humanity, thereby taking on himself the obligation to fulfill all righteousness. So his identification with, with us as a human, he's taking on himself all righteousness, um, obligation to fulfill all righteousness so that he might be a perfect savior and substitute for us. So he is fulfilling all righteousness by becoming the perfect savior and the substitute for us. The, the Old Testament prophecies were saying that there's, there's laws and there's perfections that have to be kept by the Savior. And He is keeping these things. He is fulfilling these prophecies. He's fulfilling these laws by being 100% righteous and offering Himself now as the perfect Savior and substitute for us. So that's the second thing, is that He's identifying with us and answering the question. That's what it means that He's um, fulfilling all righteousness, is that He's fulfilling the role of the priest and He's coming now to be the one who's going to sacrifice Himself and be the perfect Savior and substitute to us. All right, so now we've moved into um, a little bit more here. and I just want to uh, kind of point out some things as we're going through this. John seems to be uh, pretty aware of the fact that he shouldn't be the one to do the baptism. He points out in verse 14, um, John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Now, at this moment... uh, it's pretty clear from Scripture that John didn't know that Jesus was the Messiah. Um, he knew who he was, definitely. He knew that he was a great moral teacher. Remember, um, John's mother 
and Jesus' mother were cousins. They were first cousins. Um, and so John was probably a contemporary, grew up with Jesus. And so he knew him, and he knew that he was, he was an unbelievable guy. He knew that he was a good moral teacher, but he didn't know quite yet that he was the Messiah. Uh, the reason why we know this is because of the book of John. Um, not John the Baptist didn't write the book of John. But in the book of John, in chapter 1, this is what John the Baptist is giving testimony to the baptism. And this is what he says. Um, I'm going to be in John 1, 29, and I'm going to go down to 34. This is, this is John the Baptist kind of talking about the baptism of Jesus and what was going on that day and why, before the baptism, he didn't know for sure that Jesus was the Messiah. This is what he says. The next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man... Before, I'm sorry, this, this is a crazy sentence. After me becomes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him. There it is, 31. I myself did not know him. So he knew him, but he didn't know that he was the Messiah is what he's saying there. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose, I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. This is John the Baptist talking here. Look what he says. I saw the Spirit... Descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on, on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. So what he's saying is, before I baptized him, I didn't know. I wasn't sure that he's Messiah. I knew he was a good guy, and he comes to me and asks me to baptize. And I'm like, I don't think I can do this. Um, you're a pretty good guy. And, the, and Jesus says, let's do it to fulfill our righteousness. And John says, okay, I'll do it. And then they go into the water, and John the Baptist baptizes Jesus. And as he comes up out of the water, John is witnessing the Holy Spirit descend down on Jesus. And then right there is when it clicks in John's head. I know who it is. This is the Messiah. I know exactly who this is now. So this John didn't know beforehand, but now he does. At the moment of baptism, he sees that this is the Messiah and that this is the one who's been talked about. And then, of course, John went on the rest of his life, which was a short one, telling people about Christ, that saying, I'm not the Messiah, this man is, you, you need to live for him, etc. So we go to 16, and it says, When Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And beho- let's stop here for a second, because I just want to point out a couple things. Um, Jesus was baptized, okay? Jesus was baptized. If you haven't been baptized, I'm not saying you need to be baptized um, in order to be saved, but I am saying Jesus was baptized. So if you haven't been baptized, number one, Jesus has given us the example. So you should be. You should be baptized. You should be obedient here and be baptized because Jesus gives us the example. And number two, he tells us all in Matthew twenty-eight nineteen to go baptize people. So um, if you ha- this is just a quick side. If you haven't been baptized, you should be. Um, and then it says in verse 16, um, And when he was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold. Now, I just want to point out one other little thing, and this is kind of a nerdy thing to point out, but I, th- I just thought it was interesting. Um, as I was reading commentaries this past week, um, I, I read a lot of kind of, Presbyterian commentators and Baptist commentators. Um, that's just what I read. So anyway, um, 
and 16, um, all the Presbyterian commentators are like, we have no idea if he was actually immersed or they're just taking water and sprinkling him and all this kind of stuff. And all the Baptist commentators are like, it's clear, it's so clear that he's, John the Baptist takes him down and dunks him up. It's absolutely, and so I just thought it was pretty interesting. It's kind of a nerdy thing to point out that all the Presbyterians are saying, it's just obvious, we have no idea. Maybe he threw water on him and all the Baptists are saying, oh, it was definite. He just dumped him down and brought him back up. Um, but in the end, I think it is clear that it was, a baptism. And the reason why is because the word baptize has just been um, transliterated. That means they took a Greek word and just made it an English word. The Greek word is baptizo. And so instead of saying what it means, defining it, we just say baptize. We're just going to take that Greek. That's called transliteration or, or transliterating. Um, the better thing to do is, trans, is just to translate the word. Baptizo literally means immerse. So if we read it, we can say and when Jesus was immersed, immediately he went up from the water and behold. So I think it is clear, and of course that's why I'm Baptist. Anyway, um, back to the text. Um, back to the text. Uh, I'm so confused. There's so much more I want to say. I want to stop. Um, all right, so here we go. Immediately he comes out of the water and behold. Now, John and, and the Presbyterian, this is what I wanted to say. The Presbyterian commentators were correct in this one thing. And, and the Baptist guys just missed it. They're so excited about the immersion, they missed like the forest for the trees. The Presbyterian guys that I read, that I read, saw the main point, which is the next part of verse 16. It's, the point is not for us to prove baptism through dunking. The point is the word, behold. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold. The point's not how he was baptized, but what happens next after that? Here it is. Behold, the heavens were opened to him. All right. This is crazy. I'm just going to say, this is crazy. Where's heaven? Where is it? Where's heaven? Can you, can you get in a rocket ship and go there? As a matter of fact, um, no, you can't. But we, we don't know where heaven is. As a matter of fact, let me say it this way. We don't even know that heaven has a where. Does that make sense? Um, and here we see, uh, and if you read over in the, the Mark version, it's even more clear. This is explicit. This is crazy to think about. That in this moment, physically, physically, heaven, wherever it is, if it has a where, came physically over the baptism and opens up. It literally opens up and Jesus and John, the Baptist, we know for sure, maybe the rest of them that were there, we have no idea, it, it physically opens up, and as they're looking up, they can see beyond the planets and stars and literally see into heaven. They can see into heaven. This is, this is crazy. Um, they're able to see into it, and this is what happens. Behold, the heavens were opened to, to Jesus, and he saw that him is not really there, so I'm assuming it's Jesus, but it could be John. If you have a little two there and you can go down, it says some manuscripts omit to him, so... We're, it's, it's debatable. But the heavens were open, but I'm, we're assuming it's Jesus because the fact that it, the Holy Spirit descends down on Jesus, not on John the Baptist. Um, so the heavens were open to him, and he saw the Spirit of God 
Now, we're going to see here the Trinity, all right? This, the whole point is for us to see the Trinity and the affirmation of Jesus at this baptism to begin His public ministry to show that He's the Messiah. And the whole Trinity is there. Matthew's wanting us to see this is a big deal. When all three players show up in the Trinity, this is huge, all right? So, um, the heavens were opened up to Him and He saw the Spirit of God <laughs> descending like a dove. Now, this is just a side note too. This is hilarious. Um, the word dove can also be translated pigeon, um, <laughs> but it's just way cooler to think of it as a dove, like the pigeon. We think of pigeons as these dirty creatures, that, like rats with wings that fly around. But um, it's a dove, and that's just much more peaceful, beautiful, clean, pure idea that it's gentle. Um, pigeons aren't gentle. I was reading the commentators, and they say, the reason why this is definitely a dove is because doves are gentle. And pigeons aren't gentle. They're, they're crazy. Um, so it's definitely a dove, although the word in Greek is just either one. It's just like dove or, or pigeon. But anyway, saw so the Spirit of God descending like a dove. It wasn't an actual dove. I mean, it's just an appearance of something that looks like a dove. And it descends down on him and it comes to rest on him. And here's the other behold. This is how we know it's important. There's two of them. Um, in the King James, I think it's low. So, and behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son. There's the father. The spirit descends down on the son and we hear the father's voice saying, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We all, now remember, okay, I, I know that this is Jesus. We can say, yeah, this is Jesus. I mean, this is Jesus, all right? He's God. But there is a definite humanity side to Jesus. He is 100% God, yes, but he's also 100% man. He is like us. And we all know, and we all can understand, the greatness of being affirmed and being commended by our own Father. We understand that as we're walking through life, Whenever we're about to endeavor something, whenever we're about to encounter a serious situation in life, and for Jesus, this is, this is the most of serious situations that anyone could endeavor because it's Jesus beginning the public ministry which would eventually lead him to a cross to die for the salvation of the world. We can all understand the glory and the greatness that Christ must feel in this moment when his Father opens up the heavens and Jesus can look. He hasn't done this for 30 years. He hasn't seen into heaven, humanly speaking, for 30 years. And God opens them up and he speaks down. The father says, I'm well pleased with you, my son. We can all feel the greatness of that. And there's even more to it. And this is a little bit kind of nerdy. But um, this tense of this verse is called the aorist tense. Um, which basically just means this. It's kind of like a, uh, the Greek is kind of cool in the way it trans- or has verbs. And this aorist tense just means that this is like a past tense. But this past tense um, is basically saying um, this is something that happened in the past but continues on always. It's, this isn't necessarily, con- this, this well-pleased, this I've always loved you, I'm, I love you always, isn't contained in time for a moment. But it's, it's, it happened in the past Eternity passed, and it's always happened, and it's always going to happen. There's never been a moment, and there never will be a moment, Jesus, as me, your Father, won't always be well-pleased with you. Pretty, uh, pretty amazing thought to, to say. He's talking to him in this, in this sense where he's saying, I, I love you, and I have always loved you. Now, he says, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well-pleased. So here's the third thing. Here's the third thing. The first one is that Jesus obeys the Father. The second one is that Jesus is identifying with us 
as coming as a human and being baptized and all these things. The second thing is that Jesus is commended by the Father. Jesus is commended by the Father. So, he says, This is my Son, with whom I am well pleased. And this, vo- this voice comes down, and we see the full Trinity here happening. And we understand that Jesus is, um, is understanding from the Father because it's been opened up, and it's saying, I am well pleased with you, and I am always going to be pleased with you, continuing all the way back and all the way forward forever. Um, this is good news for Jesus. This is very encouraging for him as he's starting his public ministry. Um, because it, if you keep reading, like the very next section, which we're going to go to next week, is all of a sudden, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil for 40 days. Extreme suffering is about to happen next. Extreme suffering. And Jesus needs to know, right before the the hard times hit, he hears his father saying, I'm well pleased with you. John Piper was commenting on this right here, and he said, one of the wonderful effects of these words is to assure Jesus and us that the fire of misery and pain that Jesus was about to walk into was not owing to his father's displeasure. The pain that Jesus is about to encounter is not because the Father is displeased with him. And it's so easy for us to think that. I'm encountering a tragedy right now. I'm encountering suffering right now. God must be just angry with me right now. And Jesus is going to unpack this verse for us right here. And I mean, this idea, I should say, this whole idea of suffering for us in Matthew 5, when he says... Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you. We see it in James right in the beginning when he said, Count it joy, my brothers, whenever you have suffering. We see, um, we see another place in 2 Timothy 2 where it says, um, It's God's will that everyone's going to be persecuted. And so when persecution or suffering happens in your life, it's not because, don't miss this, it's not because God's angry with you. And we need to know that. This whole theology is going to be built out by the, by the rest of the writers in the New Testament because they see this and they say, God is well pleased with Jesus. The next verse, suffering happens. And just because suffering is happening in your life does not mean that God is not fully pleased with you. We live in a fallen world. Genesis 3. Genesis 3 is why you're suffering. Genesis 2, no suffering. Genesis 3, sin enters the world and everything's broken. And it always will be broken. That's why we see, that's why we see men performing abortions that are illegal in the state of Pennsylvania and, and being arrested. That's why we see things like that. And I'm just going to say, may it be a day where we look at abortion the same way that we look at slavery as just abhorrent to be in this society. And listen, I, I, you have to couple a, ver, a saying like this with this. And ladies, if you've ever had one, I'm not saying that you're abhorrent. I'm saying that God can reach into your, your, your situation. He can heal you. And there's no doubt about that. The grace of Christ is amazing. The gospel of Jesus is absolutely amazing to cover these things. If you've had one, the grace of Christ does not look over that and see as you as some awful person because there is no such thing as an awful person. We're all just bad. You're no more worse than I am. I'm terrible. 
but because of the gospel of Christ, we're all forgiven. So if you have sin in your past and you feel like you're suffering right now, it's not because of sin. Because if we're in Christ, he's always well pleased with us. And we see this in the, in the commending of the, of the Father to the Son. That God would say, with you I am well pleased. It's not owing to the Father's displeasure that you're going to walk into suffering, but because of his pleasure. I want to conclude with this verse because Paul takes this thought here um, about Jesus being the beloved of the Father and kind of, in a sense, comments on it. In a sense. I'm not sure if it was in Paul's mind, but it's, it's very applicable to this text. Um, as we see what it means for God to call Jesus his beloved, and then we as children of God get to be connected or attached or adopted into this family because of the beloved, because of Jesus. This is Ephesians chapter 1. And this, this text is just amazing. This is Ephesians chapter 1. This is what it says, starting at verse 5. In love. Don't miss the fact that it's in love that God has called you forward to be his son or daughter. It's in love. It's in love. In love. He has predestined us. Here it is. For adoption through Jesus Christ. Adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. And you can just throw in the word daughters. He's adopted us as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. To the praise of His glorious grace. Why did He call us forward to be His sons and daughters? Because in the end, it's for His glory. It's not for our own. It's for His glory. And look at this. To the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us, there it is, in the Beloved. We see in Matthew 3, the Father calling Jesus the Beloved. And because of that, all of us are now attached, because of the Beloved, Christ, we're attached into the family of God. We've all been adopted as sons and daughters into it because of the gospel. If you put your faith in Christ, you are in the family of God because of the work of Jesus. God's fatherly love to call us as sons and daughters flows to us only by Christ and his work and calls us, he calls Jesus the beloved and he is the one that has died for us. And we receive blessings as well just as Jesus is receiving blessing from the Father, because we're all, if you're in Christ, adopted into his family. This is amazing. This whole text that we're seeing here is about Christ. I mean, this is, you can kind of look at this as the baptism of Jesus, and he's just telling us that to move us on to the temptation where we can see the real story start happening. But there's a lot happening in here. Jesus is obeying the Father for us on our behalf. If he didn't, if then Jesus didn't happen, there would be no salvation for us. He is totally obedient to the Father's will, which is death, which purchased us life. He associates himself in baptism so that we can see our Savior being baptized, signifying our death and our resurrection that he gives to us in the gospel. And then he's commended by the Father in whom he is called the Beloved. And we see here, all of our salvation only flows through Christ. And now we are in the family of God because of this. These verses are just screaming out the gospel to us. So if you're in Christ, 
This is reason to rejoice as we read this. This is reason to lift your hands and say, you reign, everything's about you, all of it is for you, I want to live my life for you. And if you're not in Christ, if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, today's the day for salvation. He came and was obedient to the Father. And if you would put your faith in Christ, you can receive salvation as well. The gospel is filled in these verses. The gospel is the good news that Jesus came and died the death for you that you didn't have to die and has given you the righteousness that you never could attain and that he defeated death and he is resurrected three days later and now we all, because he has resurrected and has life, we can have life eternal with him. And you can have life eternal with him if you would put your faith in him and walk with him the rest of your life showing that he is your highest treasure above anything else. We're going to go into a time of, of worship. Um, as we've said many times, the way we like to pattern our services is to have what we call revelation. And this is where God reveals himself to us in his word. And then we respond. Revelation and response. We hear the word of God. You haven't heard from me. Praise Jesus. You've heard from him through his word. And now we want to respond. Based on what we've heard from him, from his word, we want to respond in the way that he is moving in your life. Whichever way the Holy Spirit right now is stirring your heart, respond in that way. There's freedom in that. There's a lot of freedom in that. If you want to stand and sing, stand and sing. If you want to sit and pray, sit and pray. If you want to open your Bible and just read some more scriptures about how great Jesus is, do that. If you don't know Jesus and you want to know Jesus, then come find me, talk to the person you came with, and don't leave this place without having your questions answered about how you can put your faith in Christ and become a Christian. I'm going to pray and turn it over to Cameron and we're going to go into a time of worship. And I just ask that you would be obedient to the will of the Father. However the Holy Spirit's leading you right now. And don't be afraid to worship. Don't be afraid to, to lift your voice. Don't be afraid to lift your hands. Don't be afraid to take your life and lift it up to the Father and say, this life is yours. When I walk out of those doors, I'm going to do whatever you want. Because worship isn't just the next 15 minutes. Worship is walking out of this room for the rest of your life. Living a lifestyle of worship, showing that Jesus is your highest treasure. It's how you speak to your wife when you get home. It's how you speak to your husband when you get home. It's how you teach your children about Christ. It's how you know that this co-worker of yours needs to hear their gospel. It's how you see someone in need and you meet their need. That's lifestyle worship. Let me pray. God, you are amazing. You are worthy of all worship. I thank you for this set of verses that shows us how much you are willing to go through to be obedient to the Father and how much you are willing to go through to associate with us and how much you are, and identify with us and how much you are willing to go through to save us. The definite plan from eternity past was that you would come and die for our sins and you were obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, so that you may be lifted up and glorified in heaven eternally, forever. And it would be the sacrifice, it would be the heartbeat of our souls to lift up your name forever and worship you. And so let this, this next time of worship be a picture, be a portrait, be an illustration and an example of what our lives will look like for the, all of eternity when we're in heaven. Let us worship with that kind of vigor. Let us worship with that kind of excitement. 
Let us worship right now the same way we will worship in heaven, even though we're broken. We thank you for the cross. We thank you that you defeated the cross and that we are your children by faith in Christ. Pray these things in Jesus' name.